Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Jeremiah 23, and we're in the middle of uh, traveling through Jeremiah, and I don't think you'll understand Jeremiah if you, wanna, if you try to read it in a chronological order. <laughs> so, remember that Jeremiah prophesied, you know, 40, 60 years, and his book is sort of like a scrapbook, although my scrapbook would be way different than Kara's scrapbook. Kara's scrapbook would be chronological and perfect and da-da-da-da. I would take my stuff and jam it in a book. And his sort of is like my way. It does kind of have a pattern, but there's no chronological order, and you're going to see that again tonight. And The first, into the late 20s of the chapters of the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah prophesying against the southern kingdom of Judah. Do you remember that? That's important to remember. And just so you know, You know, Solomon was the king around 970 to 930 B.C. Now, I know you hate dates, and I kind of like dates, but I just want you to put it as a frame of reference. And in 931 B.C., the two kingdoms split. There were 12 tribes of Israel, 10 went to the north, and two went to the south, and then After 931, the southern kingdom of Judah had several kings, and we're at the end of those kings, and that's when Jeremiah comes in and prophesies, because what happens when the last king is in office there for Jeremiah, in in Jeremiah, in the southern kingdom, as he prophesies against the last king? There's this world power called Babylon, (laughs) And it comes right to the gates of Jerusalem and over about a two-year period in the third and final wave of war against the city. It just basically strangles it out and then just decimates it, okay? So the Babylons or the Babylonians came to Jerusalem in three waves. I just referred to it. Around or so, 605 B.C., the first wave came Babylon, and took out, it says, all the princes, all the cream of the crop people, including, good, Daniel and his friends, and they went to Babylon. And then in 597 or so, another wave of Babylonian invasion and persecution, and they took some people out, around 10,000 people, and then the final knockout blow. Look at this. I think it's the most important date in the Old Testament. And that's 586 B.C. 586 B.C. Write it in your Bible. 586 B.C. is finally when the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom, and in particular, the city of Jerusalem. And we're now at that point. The Babylonians are at the gate. And that's what we're reading about here in chapter 23. We did chapter 23, 1 through 8. When we got to the, in chapter um, 21 and 22, we just saw, remember this, four bad kings. Bad king, 
bad king, bad king, bad king, and you're like, my goodness, what's happening here? And then in chapter 23, 1 through 8, we see the promise of the coming Messiah, the great king, the king of all kings, a branch of righteousness. And what's cool about this branch of righteousness that was to come, watch this, this is really important, He's not only going to be a righteous king, he is going to be that, but this is something that should just warm your heart. He's going to be your righteousness and my righteousness when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. He's not just a righteous king, he is our righteousness. And that's where we stopped last time. Now watch this as we go to chapter 23, verse 9. I'm going to read a few verses. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this. This is Jeremiah talking. My heart within me is broken. Why is his heart broken? Because of the prophets. Just do me a quick favor and turn back to Jeremiah 14, 14. Go there. Jeremiah 14, 14. You're going to see why... He's so sick. Think about this. This is a prophet who's heart sick over the other prophets. And his heart is broken. Watch this. Why is he heartbroken? 1414. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. That's what was going on. Do you catch that? Now go back to Jeremiah 23, verse 9. This man, Jeremiah, who's now been prophesying for 20 plus years, watch this. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. He is a prophet. His dad was probably the great high priest, or if he wasn't that same great high priest, we know that he came from priestly families. So he's sick about the religious leaders and what they've done to the nation. What a hard message. All his bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, he says, and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord. And because of his holy words, for the land is full of adulterers. Now listen, of course that's speaking of spiritual adultery, but there is even some suggestion in chapter 5, verse 7, that the leaders of the country, including maybe, possibly the spiritual leaders, were committing adultery physically. And there is even some indication it was in or near the temple. Can you believe it? For because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. You could look back in Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 28, and you could see that one of the blessings of following the law was that the earth, or excuse me, that the country, Judah, was going to be full of lush ground because it was going to rain. So when he says... The land is full of adulterers, for because of a curse of the land, or the land mourns. That's what he's referring to. They weren't obedient. You get it? The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil, and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. And that's a real serious word there in the Hebrew, profane. 
Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fallen them. For I'm going to bring disaster on them, the year of the punishment, says the Lord. And I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. See, this is why you've got to know your Bible and your, your, your maps. <laughs> Where's Samaria? In the north. I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. What happened to the northern kingdom? It was ripped out in 722 by the Assyrians. And now he says, they prophesied by Baal. One of the functions of Baal, they thought, was to bring rain. You can see that in the famous story of Elijah. And they caused my people Israel to err. Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. This is why you need to know your maps. Samaria's in the north, Jerusalem's in the south. He's saying that the prophets of the south have done exactly what the prophets and the people of the north have done. It crept in. Do you see that? They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. This is what, look at this, the lifestyle of the prophetic leaders of the religious landscape in Judah. Look at, look at it. It was despicable. It was evil. It was rotten. And he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and he says in verse 15, Therefore, so thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'm going to judge them. It doesn't say that. It says I'm going to feed them wormwood. That means I'm going to judge them. And make them drink the water of gall, for from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, look at this. Now we get to what the message of the false prophets are. Now you're going, who cares about false prophets? Back all those years ago, really? Well, the New Testament rails against it, and we're going to see it here in a minute. So watch this. The lifestyle of the uh, prophets was profane, but watch this, the message. Don't, don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. Folks, you got to watch it. You got to know your Bible so intimately and so well that when you see someone or somebody or a message that comes down the horizon and they sound religious, and it sounds good, and it sounds wonderful, it could be false. And not only could it be false, it can make you spiritually worthless. It can do nothing for you because they could be telling you lies. That's what it says. They speak, watch this, a vision of their own heart. What does the Bible tell you? See, have you ever heard this, these platitudes? Hey, just listen to your heart. Do what you feel right. Anybody ever given you some advice like that? Uh, look inside yourself and find out. But the problem with that is the Bible says your heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? And the soul that sins shall surely die. Ooh, alliteration. But you see? How, how can you listen to yourself? But there are people in the Christian church that are telling us just take it day by day and listen to what your heart tells you. Uh-oh, sounds good. 
Sounds like we should put it on Facebook or Instagram or something, but it's not good advice. And here, they speak of their vision of their own heart, but not from the mouth of the Lord. There are prophets that were going around in their day that were speaking what they thought, not what the Lord thought, and they were dressed like prophets. They stood in pulpits. Not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, listen to what the, listen to what the prophets say. The Lord has said, you shall have peace. Come on, folks. Why do we have to talk about sin so much? Everybody has an opportunity to go to heaven. If you just look inside yourself and draw up the power of you, and you're just kind and nice to people, well, then you can go to heaven because all roads lead to heaven. We all say it. See, that's the most unloving thing you could ever say. According to what the Bible says, they continually, not just sometimes, say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. Come on. The Lord, Lord doesn't really care whether you're in sin. Come on, we live in the era of grace. And we do live in the era of grace. And there is grace and mercy and forgiveness. But Paul tells us, don't trample on the grace of God. No, no born-again new creation would trample on the grace of God. Would we make mistakes and sin? Of course. But we wouldn't thumb our nose at him. But there are people that are telling you, live any way you want to live, and just come on back in and keep asking for forgiveness. Come on, you're going to have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil is going to come upon you. You see, here's what's so devious and diabolical about a false prophet. They give the people, watch this, false hope or a false safety net when there is no safety net. 18, for who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? Now watch this. Now see, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, but I just got to say it. Look what the prophets or the people who are proclaiming the word of God need to do. They need to stand in the counsel of the Lord, and they've perceived and heard his word. Have, have these false prophets stood in the counsel of the Lord and, uh, and uh, perceived and heard his word? That's what, that's what real pastors and prophets and teachers need to do. They need to hear from the Lord and bring it to the people. They don't need to make stuff up themselves and give it to the people. You understand? And the reason I said I don't want you to feel sorry for me is, I mean, I can't possibly do every funeral. I can't possibly go visit every person that needs visited. I have no more special powers than you do. I just have different functions. So don't get upset if we send somebody else, <laughs> it takes a long time to be in the presence of the Lord and hear what he wants to say and bring it to the people. And that's a whole job. And some people, you know, they think if the pastor doesn't show up, well, they don't care. Well, yeah, the pastor does care. But he, he is in the presence of the Lord. He's, he's trying to hear from the Lord so he can give to you all what the Lord wants to say. It's a really powerful thing. But what I want you to see is that there's some messages and some people who don't ever go through that process. And I'm not pointing the fingers. I'm just showing you what the Bible says. 
For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It's going to fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord won't turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Interesting. As we get closer and closer to the time of the Lord's return, although we don't know when he's going to come back for us in the rapture, until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his hearts in the latter days, you'll understand it perfectly. You ever had a puzzle? I hate puzzles, by the way. I'm so, I'm so impatient, but Jan loves them. And, you know, when you first get them, it makes no sense. But then, you know, you get the little border, and you're like, get it kind of excited. And, one, and then you go, wow, I can start to see. Well, that's what's happening here as we get closer to the time that Jesus comes back. If you'll just pay attention to the news, every morning my wife says to me, almost every morning, the Bible is coming true right before our eyes. And it's so true with what's happening in the East or Middle East. Well, anyway... Look at verse 21. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. (laughs) That's God speaking. They can't wait to tell people what they have to say. And God says, I never even sent them. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Do me a favor and turn over to 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So you can see this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. You know this verse, but I want you to see it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. But what we're uh, seeing as the last days come is that there are some who just preach to the itching ears of a earthly and worldly lustful congregation. Just tell me the things that the world seems to like and love, and we buy into it. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places, verse 24 says. So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill the heaven and the earth? In other words, chapters or verses 21 through 24 say these false prophets have no authority. They think they have authority, but none. And there really is no inspiration. Look at 25 And on, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make people forget my name by their dreams. Are you catching what this is saying? Which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forget or forgot my name 
for Baal. They, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my words, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Now let me just break this down for you. See, this is so relevant for today. And here's why. You got people saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. And can God speak through a vision or a dream? I think so. But we have people that are just coming forward. You ever talk to somebody and all they say is, well, the Lord told me. And you're like, wow, that's interesting. And the Lord spoke to me, and the Lord said this to me, and the Lord, and you're like, man, how many times has the Lord spoken to you? I mean, I, I think the Lord's spoken to me a few times in my life. I've never heard him audibly. But there was something that he put in my heart, like, boom, I, I just knew it was from the Lord. But, he, but you got people running around and saying, brother, the Lord's telling me to tell. And you're like, hmm, okay, can that happen? Yes, I believe it can happen. But boy, oh boy, you got some people, it's just one right after the other. You turn on Christian TV and you're like, I feel like a total dunce here, because I ain't hearing what this guy's hearing. And I don't know if you caught this, and by the way, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe the gifts are for today. Of course the gifts are for today, but you got some people running around, seems like they have the bat phone to God himself. I want you to see something. What the, what the Lord himself says here is, if somebody does that, if they come to you with something, what is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Watch this. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord? In other words, I'll burn away all the stuff that doesn't matter, and I'll get to the real stuff by my word. And is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? What can a hammer do? Of course, it can build and it can break. It can break the falseness. It can build the realness. I know that's probably not good grammar, but you get me what I'm saying. In other words, when people come up and start saying this stuff to you, and I believe in the gifts, match it against the fiery hammer tough word of God. And if it doesn't match up, mm, 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 that guy or gal is in deep trouble. Not from me, but from the Lord. And don't let them put a trip on you. Remember, all the gifts should be tested against the eternal word of God. Anything like that. Therefore, behold, verse 30, the Lord says, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, watch this, who sound religious, I said that, who steal my words, the Lord said, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongue and say, he says. <whistles> you better be right when he says. That's what this is telling us. 
Behold, I am against those, verse 32, who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Man, when people are driving you nuts on TV for money, come on. That ain't of the kingdom, man. And, and all the other things that are done in the name of the Lord. Verse 33, so when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you saying, what is the oracle? That word is really hard in the Hebrew to, to uh, uh, translate. It re- really means burden. And there's really a play on words here. It says, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall then say to them, what burden or what oracle? It's actually saying, it's not, you don't get it in the English. When people or the prophet or the priest ask you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you're the burden. You're the problem. That's what this is saying. I will even forsake you, says the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say the oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. This every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what has the Lord answered and what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more for every man's word will be his oracle for you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, What has the Lord answered you, and what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore, thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and I have sent you to you, saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you in the city that I gave you and your fathers, and will cast you out of my presence, and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten." Now, let me show you something. Turn over to 2 Peter 2. Look in the verse, verse of, or chapter of 2 Peter 2 if you don't think this is an important issue for today. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies Look at this, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the uh, way or truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. Check it out. By money issues, covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And then it says, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of the darkness to be reserved for judgment, and didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. Wow, that's a run-on sentence. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among uh, them tormented his righteous soul, etc. <laughs> Look in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. You, do you know the context in which he's saying those judgment words? For false prophets 
people who are doing this for their own gain and are really passing on information and spiritual counsel and wisdom, they're saying wisdom, 10 keys to wisdom, oh my gosh, to burn you and to rip you off. And there's a special place (laughs) for them, the Lord says. And you could go on. There's the depravity of false teachers in 12 through 17 and the deceptions of false prophets. And you could talk about it. See, because God doesn't want to be misrepresented to the people. And that's why when you're teaching, you're under a different standard. That's what the Bible says. Don't misrepresent me. And that's what they were doing. And here you got the one man, Jeremiah, all those years preaching what the Lord has said, but you have hundreds of prophets saying the exact opposite, and it sort of was drowning him out. And yet, he kept preaching, and the Lord kept bringing his message through his man, Jeremiah. Now watch this. You go on to 24. This is so illogical. None of us would do it this way. Watch this. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. Remember that these guys? Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. He's the next to the last king of Judah. And the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths and had brought them to Babylon. And you could read about that in 2 Kings 24, 14. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which couldn't be eaten. They were so bad. And then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which can't be eaten, they're so bad. And again, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah. Are are you catching the logic there? Think about it. What would you want to do? Be comfortable in your own home or travel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles? Who knows where you're going to live, what you're going to do, and be a captive in a superpower that's against your country? What would you rather do? Well, you'd probably rather stay home. But here what the Lord says is that the good figs are the people who go to Babylon. Why would that be? Look at this. I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place, circle or underline it, for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. Here, in the Old Testament, here it is. Don't ever say, I hate this one. Don't say that the Lord of the Old Testament is different than the Lord of the New Testament. That's not true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here you see, watch this, total grace. When you consider what the people of Judah and Israel had done in the temples and the things, I mean, they were bringing in curtains in the temples so they could ply, pay for prostitutes in the temple. And on and on and on. They were sacrificing their firstborn, folks. 
Well, anyway, I'll set my eyes on them for good. Now, let me ask you something. What have you heard so far that the people of Judah had done that would merit the Lord putting his eyes on them for good? What? Nothing. This is grace. You ever heard the term unmerited favor? Here it is. They'd done nothing. He'd just chosen them to be the conveyor, not the container. I'm stealing that from Norman Geisler. The conveyor of God's love to show God's love to the world. And here comes the grace of God. I'm going to set my eyes on them for good. Where? In Babylon. And I'm going to bring them back to this land. Where? Judah. And I will build them and not pull them down. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. And if you went back to chapter 1, I think around verse 7 to verse 10, that's what God told Jeremiah was going to be his job. Plucking and building and bringing back to health. Then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Do you see how God's grace, what it can do to a people and a person? It's this unmerited favor that not only, watch this, has the favor of the Lord on this person. He brings them and returns them back to where they always should have been. That's redemption. I'm going to build them and not pull them down. That's sanctification. First one was justification and not pluck them up. And then I'm going to give them the greatest thing ever. This thing in which you can commune with God, a heart towards the Lord. In fact, if you turn over to John 17, go there. Go to John 17. And in verse 3, I want you to never forget this. Eternal life is living with the Lord in heaven. But watch this. Eternal life at its core is not out there then. It's right now. Soon as you give your heart over to the Lord, look at this. This is eternal life that they may know you. This is what, this is the, right here, if you don't know anything about the Bible, that's the core of it, the whole thing right there, that we could know God and that He would know us and be in His presence because that's the safest and place, uh, greatest place to be. We would know Him, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's it. And that's grace. That's why we get excited about grace. Because I'll be their God, and then they'll come back to me and live with me with their whole heart. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so I will, will I give up Zedekiah, that's the last king, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem, who remain in the land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Turn back to Second Peter. I want to show you a principle that God always acts upon. Go to Second Peter 3. This is not something we often praise the Lord for, but man, should we praise the Lord for this, if I can get there. <laughs> Come on. 2 Peter 3, 
and verse 9. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you read what going from 21 through around 24 right here, he's been telling them, and even before that, over and over again, that if they would just repent and turn from their ways, there still could be a chance, but they wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it. And if you go into the next chapter, we're going to say here that they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't listen. But God kept being patient with them because he wanted a remnant. He wanted a remnant that would come back and that he could show his grace to. And the other lesson that I think you learned from this is that you and I and we should not hate the chastening. Americans hate chastening. We hate it. And I want you to think about this. If he would have left them in Judah where they wanted to go and stay and be, of course, my family, my career, I can't do all this. What? You're, I know you're the Lord, but you're calling me to go up to the enemy? I don't, no way, I'm going to stay here. If they did that and stayed, they got wiped out. They were murdered, killed. It was awful. God knew if they just go back there, I have to do this judgment and then you're going to come back and you're going to know me. I mean, we're really going to know each other, the presence of the Lord. Don't wiggle out of the chastening. It's good for us. It's healthy. I don't mean condemnation. Condemnation's from the enemy, but chastening's from the Lord. He's building us and growing us. Isn't that important? Then the word came to Jeremiah, look, watch this, concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, watch this, from the 13th year of Josiah, king of Judah, to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. He's been doing this for 23 years, folks. And he's not really seen anybody paying attention. In fact, look at the next line. But you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened, nor inclined your ear. Can you catch it? They said, repent now, every one of his evil way. In fact, Habakkuk was sent. Zephaniah was sent during this time. Repent now, every one of his evil and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them and don't provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and I won't harm you. Yet, watch it. How many times does he have to say it? You haven't listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard, here it is again, my words... By the way, he's called the Lord of hosts there. He's in charge of the heavenly armies. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And do you notice that? The enemy of God, Nebuchadnezzar, God calls his servant. God's in control, man. 
And he says, we'll bring them against the land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around. We'll utterly destroy them, make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I'll take them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and the nations shall serve the king. Oh, this is important. That's why I've been driving you to right here. This is important for your Bible study. And it's going to... You're going to serve the king of Babylon for 29, or excuse me, 70 years. Turn over to Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Look at this. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word to you and cause you to return to this place. Ah, and then everybody loves verse 11. This is on everybody's refrigerator in here. For I know the plans I have for you are the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Don't you love that verse? Well, I love that verse. Then you will call upon me, go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. But I want you to see something here. The reason, now watch this, this is really important. The reason that they were put in exile in Babylon for 70 years is according to Leviticus 25, oh, I love Leviticus, and I'm not kidding you. Verses 3 through 5, and you know what it says there? You're going to plant crops six years, and then on the seventh year, you're not going to plant any crops. You know what you're going to do on the seventh year? You're going to trust me. And then the next six years, you'll plant them again. You won't plant on the seventh year, and you know what you'll do in that seventh year? You're going to trust me. And then after 48 years, you're going to take two years off, and you're going to have a year of jubilee, and that's another story. But here's what happened. There's never any indication ever that Israel Judah ever did what the Lord said and and stopped planting. So think about what they said at the end of six years. Well, you know... Happy wife, happy life. And my wife wants some food in January. And I know the Lord said maybe he would, or maybe the wife said it because the husband wasn't doing it. Like, I'm not picking on the wife, but that's the point. But the point is the families were saying, oh my gosh, can we really trust the Lord? Listen to that. And so what they did was they did what God told them not to do. They went ahead and planted And they planted on the 7th, and they planted, and they never took a year off, and it added up. They cheated God out of 70 years, out of 490, 500. This went on for 500 years. Can you believe how patient he was? How do I know that? Because in 2 Chronicles 36, you can jot this down, 20 and 21, that's what the Lord said they didn't do. Now think about this. You're like, well, why is he making such a big deal of that? Well, the first thing is, do we trust the Lord in his promises? That's the first thing. But the other thing, and this is so important, is that the Lord always wants you and I to operate out of a position of rest. And I'm not a Sabbath keeper. I think it's a fantastic thing that you should do because you need to rest sometimes. But Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
rest. You could be the busiest person in the world and be really restful. Or you could be the person who has nothing on their schedule and be the most frantic. Do you get it? And what God was so upset with, I think, is they weren't learning to operate out of a position of rest. And American Christians don't either. <laughs> he just says, come with me. Come, come, bring me into the problem. We'll yoke up. We'll go we'll yoke together. And then it'll be easier and lighter. I might not bring you out of the problem, but I'll walk with you through the problem. He was, the Lord was upset, and so he put them in Babylon for 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years was completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words, which I have pronounced again, and all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. You want to see something cool? Turn over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Remember, where was Daniel at this time? What did you say? Daniel was in Babylon, and somehow, watch this, if I can get there. In verse 1 and verse 2, look at this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asusarius, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, look, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. What we just read, Jeremiah read in Babylon. And he started to understand the prophecy, and he knew the time was getting short or shorter, or he understood how long they were going to have to stay there. Isn't that awesome? Jeremiah just read, or excuse me, Daniel just read what you read. That it's only going to be 70 years, and then he's going to come, and he's going to, verse 14, for many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. And I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands, suggesting that they didn't treat the Jews or the Gentiles when they got them there very well. Okay, now watch. I promise we're almost done. I'm not even going to read all of this. But I am going to read this. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, take this wine cup. What does the wine cup always mean in the Bible? It means judgment. Jesus had the cup of wrath. In the Old Testament, the wine cup is always speaking of judgment. That's important for what you're about ready to read. Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, cause all the nations to whom I send to you to drink it. Now listen, he's telling Jeremiah, I want you to go to all the nations and tell them to drink the cup of judgment. How did that happen? I don't know. Maybe he called an assembly or had the kings called an assembly or something and had people, these delegations come. I don't know. And they'll drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I'm sending among them. And then if you read 17... Through 26, I won't read it. I just want you to know he names all kinds of different kingdoms. And then he says, this is important for your learning. And then he says, all the kingdoms of the world, which are on the face of the earth, are going to have to drink of the cup of judgment. 
well, wait a minute. Did that actually happen in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's day? I don't think so totally. But I know this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. When the Lord comes back with, oh, you people. Look what's going to be happening. In Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw a heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. What's Jesus coming back to do? To judge. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name with uh, written on, that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Boom. Remember, oftentimes in these prophetic passages, you see the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. And here, I think you're seeing of a prophecy that extends out to when Jesus comes back with you. That's this, that all the nations will drink the cup of judgment for what they've done. There will be a time appointed in which people and nations will and must answer for what they do or have done. Well, that gives you a little different spin on reading, watching the news tonight, right? Because what do you say when you see the country over there doing bad stuff to people you don't want them to do bad stuff? Why doesn't God intervene? Well, he's going to. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 27, drink, be drunk, and vomit. (laughs) Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you will drink. And there's no escaping this, in other words. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should uh, you be utterly punished. Of course, Jerusalem was punished. The nation's will be punished, and you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth. Therefore, prophesy against them these words and say to them, she's catching this, the Lord's going to roar from high. Now, this is talking about against the nations. And utter his voice from his holy habitation like a lion. You can see that throughout the uh, minor prophets. He'll roar against his fold. He'll give a shout as those who tread the grapes. That speaks of judgment against all the inhabitants of the earth. Now watch. These first, I know we got to go, but look, these first 25, 26 chapters have been about God pleading for them to repent, the people of God, and for the Gentile nations And do you know, in 2 Corinthians 5, right around verse 20, you're called an ambassador of Christ. What is one of the functions of the ambassador of Christ? To plead with other people. To bring them into heaven. Of course, you don't do the work. The Lord does the work, but he sent you out for these purposes. A noise will come, verse 31, to the ends of the earth. The Lord is a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now he's going to be looked at as like a storm. 
Disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, a great whirlwind from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. Boy, is that a description of Revelation 19. But anyway, they shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become, can you believe this? Do you know what the word for refuse is? It's the word refuse. They shall become refuse on the ground, wail, shepherds, and cry. Think about that. Now he's speaking to the leaders. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to flee. Those are the false prophets. Nor the leaders of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard. For the Lord has plundered their pasture and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion for the land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor. The Lord is called the oppressor right there. Some people believe. And because of his fierce anger. Or because of his fierce anger. Okay, let's land. I want you to see something, though. I, I say this a lot, but I think I, every Wednesday, I think I need to remember this. I think that I get up on Monday morning, I go to work, I come home, I watch Netflix. I don't really watch Netflix, but I do my little thing, and I maybe, you know, putter around the house a little bit, and oh, that's so beautiful, and I get up on Tuesday, and I do the same thing, and you know, that's the American way, and I just sort of pay into my 401k, and I go on some vacations, and you know, that's pretty cool, and then I read this, and I understand that a Christian is part of something way bigger and greater than just your little paycheck and your little white picket fence going over to, the, you know, the, to, to Corolla, North Carolina, and surfing the waves. You're, you're part of this grand, we're, we're part of this grand thing that the Lord is doing. And the Bible tells us to walk worthy of that. I don't think it means, like, be perfect, but what I think it means is that since you're part of this big grand scheme, participate. Because there's people in your neighborhoods, and we say this with a sad heart, they're going to hell. They're going to be judged. This is talking about a national judgment, but we know that there's the great white throne judgment in Revelation for people who want to be judged on their, or, or are going to be judged on their own righteousness, and they don't have enough righteousness to get there. We need Jesus. And, and so I want to just sort of wake us up from comfort. And I just sort of want to wake us up to, to the realities of what is going to happen in the future. There's going to be judgments. It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. It's coming for every one of us. If we're Christians, we'll be judged on the steward, the things that God's given us, not necessarily whether we're going to heaven or not. No, no, not of course. But man, don't when you get to the end of your life want to have said you poured it all out. Not held it all back. Man, when I read this, and I think you do too, you see that we're part of this amazing grand thing that the Lord's doing. Why, oh why, would he pick me? Let's pray.
Lord, just help us to be awake. Help us to be awake to the realities of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Lord, I pray that each one of us in our hearts have surrendered our lives to Christ. And if that's happened in this room, I pray that the kids downstairs, all of them too, and I pray, Lord, we put away sin and start getting serious about your programs and not our programs. Lord, help us to live this life. This is hard to go swim upstream, to go against the current. We need you and we need your help. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. And even this week, from now until Sunday, if you don't come back first, we pray that you'd give many in this room opportunities to share the gospel. And we pray that this gospel would find cultivated, plowed hearts. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody says... Amen.